following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Today I want to wrap up our mini-series that we started a few weeks back on this topic of prayer. And so the message today is just simply how to pray, part three. And the text today is going to come from Luke 18, 1 through 8. It's something that I've really tried to avoid doing throughout this entire uh, series in Luke is to jump around to different parts because I think there's something important about the order of the stories that are laid out in the gospel. But in order to stay on this theme of prayer... (coughs) (coughs) I've decided to sort of skip forward a few chapters and take a look at Luke 18, which is another parable on prayer. And so if you have your Bibles, we'd welcome you to turn there. You can also see the text up here on the screen. We're going to read from verses 1 to 8, and it reads, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray, always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? Who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Can we pray? (coughs) Father, we ask for your understanding on this difficult subject of prayer. God, really grant to us a deep and experiential knowledge of the power of prayer that is grown by faith and trust in your character, your heart for us, and help that to result in a persevering prayer life that continues to seek after you, even when it seems that the answer is not in coming. And so we just ask for your help this day to understand the story that Jesus is telling us, for we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. A Christian woman was struggling to understand this difficult issue of prayer in the midst of her battle with breast cancer, uh, wrote these words. What is the point of praying for something to happen? I can understand the point of praying as a means of simply trying to establish communion with God. But why should I pray for someone to be healed or for my husband to get a job? Or for my parents to come to salvation. I pray for others because I often feel helpless to do anything else. And I cling to the hope that maybe, just maybe, this time, it will matter. My spiritual leaders are always admonishing our congregation to spend hours in prayer, interceding for those in need. Why, if God has plans and knows what he want, we want and need what, and what's best for us, Should I spend hours asking him to change his mind? And how do I pray with faith when it seems that the kind of prayer I am lifting up rarely 
gets answered. Thoughtful and sincere Christians have shared the struggles that this woman confesses in trying to understand the essential nature of prayer. Why do so many of my requests to God seem to get turned down by Him? Why do we even pray when He already knows what He wants to do? Isn't it all just for show? I mean, do my prayers really change anything? Does it make any difference? Does prayer even matter? Maybe you've wrestled with some of these questions in your own heart. If God is on my side, why do I have to keep asking Him to do the very thing that He Himself wants to do? Why does it feel like He's asking me to beg? Why doesn't He just give it to me the first time that I ask? I mean, just imagine if you forgot your wallet one day to work, and you're out with lunch with your friend or your coworker, and you just need to borrow $10 so that you can get lunch. And you say, yeah, can you just loan me $10? And imagine if your friend were to say to you, yeah, sure, I can help you out. Uh, but what I'd really like is if you could just ask me about 10 more times, and then I might say yes. I mean, if your friend treated you in this way, I'm pretty sure you would just reply to him, uh, just forget it. I'll figure it out on my own. I mean, who wants to be humiliated like that? Who wants to have to repeatedly ask in order to get something that you figure, just give it to me already? And the thing is, is this the way you think of prayer? Is this the way you think of God? Is this the way He treats us? Keep begging. Keep begging. I like to hear you beg. And when I feel you've asked enough and I'm satisfied, then I might give it to you. I just might. There's no guarantees here, but I just might give you that thing that you're so desperate for. I think it's exactly struggles like this that caused Jesus to share the story that he did in Luke 18, as it says in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. You see that last part? And not lose heart. Jesus is recognizing, is acknowledging that there is a certain frustration built into the practice of prayer. That at times as you're praying, it feels like God is not listening to you. That he doesn't care. And so he tells this story to his disciples so that they can pray without losing heart, without giving up hope. To, in essence, persevere in prayer. He is encouraging us, don't give up. Keep praying, keep bringing your requests to God. Well, how does he teach us this? The story begins in verse 2. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. One of the most powerful positions that any person can hold in society is that of judge. It's true in ancient times, and it's true in modern times. It's hard, really, to imagine a more powerful position than a judge. You know? I mean... He holds the power of the law in his hands. And by his unilateral decision, he in essence can determine the destiny of another human being. He can send him away to jail for life if he wants. It's an unbelievable power that a judge holds. And so if you actually look at the history of it through much of society, civilized society, there have always been these attempts to place a higher authority on judges, in essence, to put the fear of God in them because of the enormous power that they wield. 
If you look in the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 19, King Jehoshaphat did this when he appointed judges over Israel. Second Chronicles 19, verse 6-7, he told them, Consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord, who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. So King Jehoshaphat says, you know, you think you hold all the power and you're the one make, calling the shots. But he's saying, listen, God is your judge. He is ultimately your judge. And one day you're going to give an account for every verdict you made before your maker. And so judge carefully how you decide the fates of men. But we're told that this judge had no fear of God. It was God schmod. Who cares? I mean, I don't believe in God. I'm not really worried about an afterlife. I'm, I'm not worried at all about standing before my maker and giving an account. We're also told that he had no, no respect for people. First century Jewish culture was what's known as shame-based culture. And in a shame-based culture, your reputation is everything. There is no greater motivator in a shame-based culture than the fear of shame. Your reputation is your life. And if you lose your reputation, you've lost everything. So in a shame-based culture, you do everything to protect your reputation in the eyes of your community. But we're told that this judge feels no shame. In other words, you could not appeal to his sense of honor for him to do the right thing in his courtroom because he has no sense of honor. He says, I don't really care what people are saying about me. I don't care what the buzz is in the village about the kind of guy that I am. It really doesn't matter to me. It doesn't bother me at all what others think. I run my courtroom the way I want to run it, and I don't care what the public opinion is about it. Now, do you see the picture of the kind of person that Jesus is painting here? This is a truly terrifying individual. He holds the all-powerful authority of a judge. And so he wields this enormous power, but he doesn't care about God. He fears no greater authority over him. And he doesn't care about his reputation. He could care less what other people think about him. This is a terrifying person. And when the original audience of Jesus would have been hearing him telling the story, I think they would have been able to read between the lines. That really, because there were probably judges like this, in truth, in their court system. And the thinking was, the only way to get anything done in this guy's courtroom, because you cannot appeal to justice to him, it's what? It's, it's, it's a little money slipped under the table. It's a bribe. It's justice goes to the highest bidder. Whoever's willing to pay to play, you're going to get your way with this judge. I think that's sort of the implication of this story. Then we're introduced to the second character, a widow. And she clearly has some kind of a legal grievance that she's bringing to this judge. In the Bible, widows and orphans represent the most powerless and oppressed members of society. Without a husband to protect her, a woman in traditional Jewish society was incredibly vulnerable. 
All kinds of unscrupulous men could attempt to take advantage of her. They could try to steal her land or do whatever else they wanted to her because women were lower than men. And so her only hope is to have justice intervene on her behalf. It's interesting that she's even in court in the first place because women did not go to court in Jewish society. The courtroom was the domain of men. So if a woman had a legal grievance, she wouldn't actually go herself to plead her case. She would send a male relative to represent her in court and plead her case. So the fact that she is even there in the courtroom reveals that she doesn't even have a male relative to defend her. She is utterly and totally alone in this. There is just no hope for her. What Jesus is representing in this widow is a person that is in an utterly desperate situation with almost no hope of getting what she needs in her life. She stands before a judge with a deadened conscience who could really care less about justice. Money is the only language that speaks in, her, in this courtroom, but it seems like she doesn't even have a bribe to pay him off. And so in essence, to this judge, this woman is a non-entity. She doesn't exist. She's just a fly on the wall. She's a nuisance. And so day after day she comes, but this judge does not care. He just wishes, Frank, he just ignores her and just hopes that she would go away and stop bothering him. You see, in this woman, Jesus is painting a picture of a person who has absolutely no leverage to get the thing that she needs in her life. And so she uses the only weapon at her disposal. She shows up to court day after day after day, and she will not shut up her big mouth. She just incessantly pesters and pesters and pesters this judge. And for a while, he just ignores her. He just acts like she isn't there. But she just won't shut up. She just won't be quiet. And so finally, he says, listen, I don't really care about God. And I could care less what other people think about me ignoring this woman. But what he says is, I just can't take it anymore. I just can't. She's driving me crazy. And so I will give her what she wants. I relent. I cry, uncle. She can have what she wants because that'll finally shut her up. Okay? Uh, that word that is used here, that she will not beat me down, is actually a boxing terminology for giving somebody a black eye. That's actually what the liter literal word means is she's giving me a black eye, meaning like she is just giving me the mother of all headaches and I, I can't handle it anymore. So I'll give her what she wants. Now, what do you make of this story? If you take the story at face value, it seems to reinforce our worst fears about God, right? What I was saying at the beginning, at the introduction of this message. Because what it seems like Jesus is saying is, God has a lot more important things to do than to worry about your petty little prayers and your petty little life, okay? He's running this universe, but if you just bother him enough, if you just get under his skin, 
to the point where you just give him a headache, then God is going to say, what's, what's with that girl, you know? I, I don't know what her problem is, but I'm so sick of hearing her voice. So angels, do whatever she wants. I don't really care. Um, is that the message of the story? Is that's the lesson of prayer? Is God doesn't want to hear your little problems, but just bother him enough, enough times, and persevere in prayer, and he'll finally relent and give you what you ask. Of course not. Jesus is using the same technique that we saw about two weeks ago, which is sometimes it's known as from lesser to greater, or sometimes it's called the how much more so argument. Meaning, if the lesser situation is true, how much more so does this not apply to God, who is so much greater than, in this case, this horrible, horrible judge? So if we were to apply the pair of this from lesser to greater or the how much more so argument to this parable, what Jesus is saying is, is this. If a desperate and helpless widow like this woman can actually get what she wants from a horrible, horrible man like this judge, then how much more so will God's people get the things that they need from a loving Heavenly Father who cares about them and wants to help them? You know, um, how many of you enjoy going to the DMV? Do any of you enjoy it? But at least every couple of years, you do it, don't you? Um, every time that letter comes in the mail, I cringe a little. Because actually, the one by my house is always horrible with terrible lines. Why do we endure these ridiculous lines at the Department of Motor Vehicles and these apathetic workers? I've never met more apathetic employees than when I go to the DMV. They just stare at you with these dead eyes. Next, you know, and then you plead your case and you're describing your situation and they're just kind of filling out some form without even acknowledging you. But we do it, don't we? We all go through this misery. Why? Because it's the only place to go to renew your license. You know, you have no choice. You have to go through this. I think that's what Jesus is saying is, you know, when you're in a desperate situation, you will overcome all kinds of obstacles. All, you'll jump over all kinds of hurdles like this widow does. Because you will do what you need to do to get what you need in life. You know? You'll do it. You'll go through whatever humiliation, whatever rejection, whatever frustration you have to do to get what you want, you'll do it. And often the person that can help you is not nearly as sympathetic to your cause as you are to your own. You often have to go to people who could care less about your situation. They don't want to help you, but you'll go to them because they're the only one that can help you. Whether it's a government employee or a friend or a relative, you go where you can get the help. And so when Jesus applies it to our prayer life, he says, listen, you have a Father in heaven who cares about you who is desperately interested in your plight and who wants to intervene on your behalf. So why don't you turn to him and persevere in your prayer? You see, there's a little trick here. There's a little problem. Because 
the logic doesn't quite make sense to us. Jesus, if you're really saying that my heavenly father cares about me, then why are you even asking me, calling me to persevere in prayer? Why are you asking me to beg and beg and beg? I don't get it. Because there is a dangerous logic that goes like this. If God really does care for me, I shouldn't have to try so hard to get the things I need. It should be very straightforward and simple. I should just ask and he should give. Straightforward. Done deal. But we know that the effects of prayer aren't nearly that instantaneous. Aren't quite often that immediate. And so this is the issue that is raised here. Is I cannot reconcile these two pictures. Of a loving God who wants to help me and do good in my life. And yet, feeling like I am praying to a brick wall. And I ask, and I ask, and I ask. But it seems like things just don't change in my life. And such problems are not being solved. Dallas Willard. <coughs> um, again, this is the conclusion that Jesus says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Dallas Willard writes, Prayer as kingdom praying is an arrangement explicitly instituted by God in order that we as individuals may count and count for much as we learn step by step how to govern, to reign with him in his kingdom. This high calling explains why prayer frequently requires much effort, continuous effort, and on some matters, possibly years and years of effort. Prayer is, above all, a means of forming character. It combines freedom and power with service and love. What God gets out of our lives, and indeed what we get out of our lives, is simply the person we become. It is God's intention that we should grow into the kind of person He could empower to do what we want to do. This is following the theme that we've been establishing in the first two messages on prayer. Is that prayer is entering into a conversation with God. And it is as much about us being transformed by that prayer as God transforming the world around us by the things we ask of Him. And what Willard is saying is, is that this goal of prayer is nothing less than God wanting you to learn how to rule with Him as His kingdom subjects. This is what it means to live in the kingdom of God, is that God wants to use your authority, empowered by Jesus Christ, to make a difference in our world. Some of that comes by your direct action, but some of it comes by prayer and learning how to ask of God the things that God wants to accomplish in this world. It is a partnership that God is establishing, and I don't understand it. I don't know why God introduces prayer into the equation when he could very well do everything on his own. He could accomplish everything without us. And yet, and yet, part of the design of the way God wants to rule in our world, rule in our families, rule in our neighborhoods, rule in our schools, is through our prayers and through us. And that is a process that has to happen in terms of even changing us through this process of learning how to pray. Because the truth is this. Often we try to get ahead of God. We don't like waiting on Him. We have our own set plans of what we think needs to happen. 
And we're trying to push that agenda through, and we try to do that through prayer. God, this is the plan here. This is the laundry list. And if you are God, you're going to do these things for me. And part of this agony of prayer, part of the perseverance of prayer, is learning how to not get ahead of God, how not to presume that this is what God wants to do in a given situation, but how to be on our knees and pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. So often we are too impatient in our prayer. And that's, in truth, what often frustrates us about prayer. It's not instant enough. And so we get frustrated with God and we give up on prayer and say, you know what, I'm done with this. You know what, if I want something done in my life, I'll get it done. You know, because I've been asking God forever and nothing changes. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to be the fix, I'm going to fix my own problems. But this is part of the invitation of prayer is to enter into a conversation with God in which it is as much about Him influencing us and listening to Him as much as it is for Him to execute our will and our wish in our life. Again, Dallas Willard writes this. We human beings have two different kinds of causation, as Lewis also pointed out. One is entirely under our control. The other, which works through the request, is not. Which he, By the request, he means prayer. If you have weeds in your garden or a flat tire, it would be better not just to pray that the weeds will die or the tire be fixed. You had better just pull the weeds or fix the tire if you can. Basically, that is your domain by nature and divine appointment. If you have a friend who is addicted to heroin, however, or lost in the jungles of intellectual faddishness, then whatever else you may do to help him, you had better pray. Not just because fixing him is beyond you, but because it is good it should be beyond you. You see what Willard is saying? To live in the kingdom is to recognize what is the domain that God has put on my charge under my authority that he invites me to exert in control and power. And what are the areas of my life that are not under my control, under my domain? And those areas are the things I need to pray for and ask God's intervention. You know, it would be ridiculous if you were a Christian homeowner and you would say, dear God, I have prayed every single day for a beautiful lawn and yet the grass keeps growing. Send your angels to cut this grass, right? I mean, if someone prayed like that, you would laugh in their face going, come on, don't be ridiculous. Just buy a lawnmower at Walmart and cut your own lawn, okay? Because the angels are not going to come and manicure your lawn for you. There are clearly some things that God says, this is your domain. You take action. But here is the difficult part of living in God's kingdom. When you acknowledge God in your life, it is also an acknowledgement that there are huge swaths swaths of my life that I have no power over. I have no control over. And you know where so much of the change that we want is, is we want other people to change. Okay? That's actually a really big part of what makes your life difficult, isn't it? It's other people. And so that's often our prayer. Fix that person. Change that person. Deal with that person. Kill that person. No, I hope no one pray that kind of prayer. <laughs> Eliminate that person. I don't know, whatever. But that person is an obstruction to the situation I face. And that is one of the biggest domains in our life where I'm telling you, 
You can learn the hard way that you cannot change a person's heart. You cannot. And many of us live many frustrated years trying to manipulate and coerce and guilt people into change. And it doesn't work. You know it. Maybe you still don't know it. But let me tell you, it doesn't work. You are not that powerful to change a person's heart. And you can try everything you can to try to affect that change in them. But only God can change a person's heart. And that's why Willard is saying, when it comes to the domain of changing people, you got to realize that that's the work of prayer. And that is the agonizing, slow work of prayer. Because you see, we are not robots. You know, we're not. You, you wish that that could happen like, you know, I'm praying for my, that person, and then next day they're just going to wake up and go, oh, hey, and they're going to become the Stepford wife or something like that. You know, I, let me make breakfast for you in bed and everything like that and go, oh, thank you, Lord. You changed them, you know. This is, this is such a naive view of what it means to ask God to intervene in a situation like this. Jesus demonstrates what this life of prayer change looks like in the lives of people by the way that he dealt with the apostle Peter. If you look in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 to 32, it says these interesting words toward the end of Jesus' life. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. <coughs> In essence, what Jesus is saying is, is this. It's been revealed to me that Satan is going to take you through the storm in life. And he's going to shake your life upside down. And so, Simon, I have prayed for you. That's my response to the situation. I have prayed for you that you would have a faith that is able to weather that storm. And when you have overcome, that you will help strengthen your brothers. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like an incredibly weak position for Jesus to take. I mean, what I want to scream back at Jesus is, come on, Jesus, you're God. Why even let Simon fall in the first place? You can engineer that outcome. You can fix that before it even happens. Philip Yancey writes, I cannot help wondering why Jesus didn't flat out deny Satan's request to test Simon. No, he's off limits. You cannot touch him. Or why didn't Jesus miraculously embolden Peter so that he could withstand the sifting? Instead, he chose the more subtle tact of praying that Peter's faith will not fail. You see, it feels like such a weak position that Jesus takes. Just fix the problem, Jesus. Just avoid the pain. Just don't let Peter fall in the first place. You're a God. But instead, Jesus says, you're going to fall. You're going to land pretty hard. But I have prayed that you won't hit bottom so hard that your faith will crumble, but that your faith will stay strong. You see, this is the way that God deals with us, all of us. He doesn't strong arm us. We are not robots that are simply reprogrammed to think something else. 
But even, this is actually the mystery, is that somehow God often acts with unbelievable restraint and what often in truth appears like weakness. But he does so, I think, intentionally, although he is all-powerful. And he could turn us into robots who are at his beck and call and do exactly as we're programmed to do. In this amazing mystery, he gives us freedom to choose to do otherwise. And living in a broken world filled with sin in which we can all choose to do otherwise, still there is a message, pray, pray. Keep praying for yourself. Keep praying for others that their heart would change. And somewhere in that mystery of people exerting their own free will, God has his way of changing people's hearts and transforming families and marriages and neighborhoods and churches. And I think this is the part of prayer that's hard for us to accept, hard for us to understand. We want God to act a lot more definitively on our behalf. We want him to just wave the magic wand and fix everything in our life. But he says, this is just not the way I've designed the world to work. And at times, it's going to make me seem very weak, very impotent. But in the mystery of my all-powerful ability and design, I will accomplish my will in your life. But that takes patience. That takes perseverance. Willard writes, I think there is perhaps no other scene in all Scripture that so forcefully illustrates the community of prayerful love as this response to Peter. How earnestly Jesus longed for Peter to come out right in his time of testing. But he left him free to succeed or fail before God and man. And as it turned out, before all of subsequent human history. He used no condemnation, no shame, no pearls of wisdom on him. And he didn't use supernatural power to rewire his soul or his brain. It was just this. I have requested concerning you that your faith may not die. It is Jesus' beautiful pattern for us to practice in our relationships to those close to us. You know, it's interesting that before Jesus called his 12 disciples, he spent an all-night prayer session praying to God, I think asking for wisdom and God's intervention to give him the 12 men that he needed to change the world. The next morning after that all-night prayer session, Jesus called out his 12 disciples. Now, in a simplistic view of prayer, the logic would be, well, that's Jesus, the Son of God. And after that all-night prayer session, if the Heavenly Father loved his Son, he ought to have given him the most incredible A-team in the world, right? Spiritual giants who have the faith to move mountains. But that's not what Jesus got. He got this ragtag group of men that drove Jesus nuts half the time. In fact, recorded numerous times in Scripture, there is this sigh that Jesus lets out going, how long do I have to put up with you? How long do I have to be with you? <laughs> so he gets so frustrated. He says, when am I going to be able to just go back to heaven and be with my father? Because I just can't take it anymore. You guys are so thick. You guys are so dense. You guys just don't get it. And in his most important, critical testing of them, in his greatest hour of need, they all abandoned him. They left him on his own in his greatest hour of testing. You could look at that story and say, you see, prayer doesn't work. Prayer doesn't work. Even if, if Jesus' own prayers can't be answered by God, 
Who am I to think my prayers are going to be answered by God? But this is the persevering, patient life of prayer. I don't think Jesus ever stopped praying for his disciples. And you know the truth is this. They did fail. And it was a horribly painful journey with Jesus. But these men would go on, in fact, to change their world. And it was through these men that the gospel spread to the entire known world. Jesus' prayer was answered. But boy, did it take a long time for that prayer to be answered. Peter, I have prayed for you in those lone watches in the night when I go up to the mountains. God, my Father, has revealed to me that you are going to be attacked by Satan. And you're going to go through the trial that is going to be almost unbearable. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And God heard that prayer. And God answered that prayer. I don't always understand why God chooses to do things this way. I too wish things were more immediate and instant. I wish God was more like that divine Santa Claus, the genie in the bottle. And all I have to do is wish it and it comes true. But this is the way God designed things to be. And in the midst of that, he invites us, pray and persevere in prayer. When the answer doesn't come instantly, it's not because I don't care or because you don't matter to me. But there is a mystery in this journey of persevering prayer that you need to understand my ways and come in alignment with my will. And that's why Jesus ends this passage by saying, when I come back, will I find faith on this earth? Will I find faith? Will I find the people that were able to persevere and still believe in my goodness and love, even the midst of everything that I'm going to ask you to go through in this life? Philip Yancey writes, I learned that I cannot fix the people I am praying for. I cannot get everything I want in the time frame I want. I must slow down and wait. I have to present my requests in a manner that seems at first like surrender. I give them up to God. And through that act of submission, God can at last begin to grow in me the qualities of fruit that I needed all along. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Just the last week, my daughter Joy, who's at U of I, called me in a bit of a panic, saying that she had fallen asleep at the undergrad library at U of I while she was studying, and when she woke up, someone had stolen her iPhone. Uh, Just when I heard that news, my heart sank, because there's still like a year and a half left on that contract. So I'm going to have to pay every month a ridiculous fee for a phone that we no longer own. I told her to quickly rush to somebody who had a laptop or something and log on to her iCloud account and basically send a kill command to the phone to erase it. And then she was doing it, and I was walking through the whole process with her on the phone. And then she said, well, it's asking me to put a contact number. I was like, contact number? What's what's the point? Um, But I said, just put my cell phone number down in there. I don't know. And I pretty much, I had thought, we're never seeing that phone again. And I'll be very honest with you, in situations like that, it's not normally my instinct to pray, you know? I, I just worry. 
and then I get angry, <laughs> and, and then I come to accept, and I go through all of those stages. But prayer is typically not part of that equation for me. I don't know why, but I just felt convicted to pray at that moment, and I said, God, this just seems like a ridiculous long shot, but you know our situation and what financial pressure it's going to put on us. And I said, if there is any way, please return the phone to us. Return the phone to us. About an hour after that prayer, I get this call from this girl that says, hey, I just bought this phone from some guy, and when I try to use it, uh, it's said to call this number. I started talking with her. I said, oh, yeah, that's my daughter's phone. Uh, could we get it back? And then the tone of the conversation changed a little, and I started getting a little suspicious because she wanted $250 to get the phone back. I didn't know what to do, so I just got off the phone with her. I said, I don't, I don't pay you $250 for this phone. Then she started incessantly texting me, trying to get the money from me. Um, <coughs> I called my daughter and said, hey, someone's got your phone. But I suspect this person's just an accomplice, not an actual person who bought this phone. And uh, why don't you just contact them and see what you can do and maybe you know, contact the police and see what they could do. Um, I had no illusions that the cops are going to put this at the number one priority on their things to get done is to recover a college girl's phone while she was sleeping, got stolen. But for some reason, we got this cop that was really incredibly interested in recovering that phone. And (laughs) he got on the phone with this girl and apparently terrified her and said, you're in possession of stolen property. You come down to the station right now or I'm going to drive to your house and pick you up. (laughs) So then she tries frantically to call me and says, give me the money. Give me the money. I can meet you right now. I'll meet you anywhere. Just give me the money. I didn't return any of her texts. And finally, the text stopped. And then I get a call from my daughter, and she goes, I got my phone back for free. (laughs) Cop just gave it to me. Now listen, I don't know if that's God's intervention. I'd like to think it was. I don't know if that's a direct answer to prayer, but I felt like it was kind of a long shot to ever see that cell phone again. But within three hours of it being reported missing, it was back in my daughter's hands without having to pay a single penny to recover it. At the same time, that same week, I was deathly ill and feeling like I was coughing out chunks of lung and running a really high fever. And I prayed every day, that the illness would subside. But it didn't. If it was, then God knows what kind of horrible illness I was supposed to have because <laughs> the one I had was actually very unpleasant. This is sort of the mystery of prayer, isn't it? I just wish God would always answer in the positive for everything I want. You know, the truth is sometimes when I pray, weird things happen, and I can't explain it. But sometimes I pray, And nothing happens. And I can't explain that either. But as Jesus is saying, underneath it all is the foundational trust in God that says, the Lord is my shepherd. He will take care of me. Let us pray. I suspect that for each of us, there are things that burden our hearts, things that we want desperately. I suppose that there are people in your life that you wish would change. I suppose that you have come to a recognition of your own powerlessness 
too often affect the very things that you so desperately realize you need in your life. And part of that is the journey of learning what it means to <coughs> live in the kingdom of God and come under His rule. Some things, I think He just empowers us to deal on our own and says, you know what? You take care of this. I give you the authority to do so. But there are also big chunks of our life where God says, you cannot change this thing. You cannot. There may be an illusion of power that makes you think you can, but you don't really realize how powerless you are. And a big area of that in our lives is other people, the people that we care about, the people that matter most to us, that frustrate us and hurt us, that resist us. God says, you know, um, those things can only come about by prayer. But that is exactly what introduces so much of our frustration. God, I have prayed. I have prayed about this. But it doesn't feel like you're listening. It doesn't feel like you care about me. So, you know, God, I, I frankly, I'm running out of patience. I'm just going to take care of this myself. I'm going to give that person a piece of my mind. I'm going to let them know how much they hurt me. And I'm going to deal with it in my own way. God says, listen, persevere. Persevere in prayer. It's not going to change overnight. People are not robots. I'm not going to mystically reprogram them overnight to become the kind of person that you think they ought to be. There is a, often an agonizing journey involved with this. But the strength for that journey comes in our faith, that we cry out to a God who loves us and cares for us. So I just want to invite you as we close out our series in prayer, and whatever your own misgivings about prayer may be, whatever your own struggles have been to deal with this issue of prayer, maybe there were seasons in your life where you really asked God for certain things, and you're losing heart, you're giving up hope. Maybe what God is trying to tell you today, don't give up hope. Don't lose heart, but let that faith be rekindled in your heart that I am at work in your life. I do want what's best for you, but it's not going to happen in your own timetable. It's not going to happen exactly even maybe the way you want it to, but submit your life to me and entrust it in my hands and I'll make something beautiful come out of it. Can we just all come before God right now in a, a moment of silence and moment of prayer and just lay that to him as our prayer. God, strengthen my faith. Help me to persevere in prayer and keep trusting in you. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.